Super nice club, super nice club, everybody's joining the super nice club for the super nice world forever and super nice club, club. Yeah, so that's the new uh, super nice club theme song. Thought I'd just kind of, you know, de debut it right there. I've been working on it for a little bit. The the other theme song that, that, that we use is, you know, kind of runs a little long. So that one's just kind of cut into the chase. I kind of, I think it works. I think it works. Hope, hope you, hope you like it too. Welcome, welcome, <clears throat> welcome to Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where we are just trying, with your help, to make the world ten percent nicer by any means necessary. I am your golden-voiced host, Todd Brilliant, and today's guest is none other than Molly Rose. Molly is program coordinator at Burners Without Borders, an absolutely super nice nonprofit organization that promotes activities around the world that support a community's inherent capacity to thrive by encouraging innovative approaches to disaster relief and grassroots initiatives that make a positive impact. In other words, they help people and communities in need. And because they're burners, they bring a special skill set and approach that is making lasting, super nice changes all over the world. Molly, Molly's going to get into specific examples of this work, talk about how you can get involved as a local leader. You'll want to check this out because I think it's pretty inspiring. It's a way to learn how to get on a, a really clear, easy path to resilience building in your community. And we're going to explain for those living in hermetically sealed anti-culture bubbles what a burner is, which means we discuss Burning Man just a bit, just a little bit, not too much. This is the 71st episode of Nice Work, which means I'm going to flip to page 71 of the book I'm currently reading uh, and read something out of it to inspire, delight, or confuse you. The book is Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. Cool. Page 71 here. Okay. So what happened to Neanderthals? Did homo puppy wipe them out after all? Homo puppy is, is euphemism for contemporary humans. This notion may make for a thrilling read or documentary, but there's not a shred of archaeology to support it. The more plausible theory is that we humans were better able to cope with the harsh climactic conditions of the last ice age because we developed the ability to work together. And that depressing book, The Selfish Gene, it fit right in with 1970s-era thinking, a time hailed as the Me Decade by the New York Magazine. In the late 1990s, an avid Richard Dawkins fan decided to put his take on Dawkins' ideas into practice. Rather than making him feel pessimistic, the book inspired CEO Jeffrey Skilling to run an entire corporation, the entire giant energy giant Enron, on the mechanism of greed. Skilling set up a rank-and-yank system for performance reviews at Enron. A score of one placed you among the company's top performers and gave you a fat bonus. A score of five put you at the bottom, a group quote-unquote sent to Siberia. Besides being humiliated, if you couldn't find another position within two weeks, you were fired. The result was a Hobbesian business culture with cutthroat competition between employees. In late 2001, the news broke that Enron had been engaging in massive accounting fraud. When the dust finally settled, Skilling was in prison. These days, 60% of the largest corporations in the United States still employ some variation of the rank and yank system. It is a Hobbesian universe. 
journalist Joris Ludjevic said of London's financial services sector in the aftermath of the 2008 credit crisis. Of all, against all, with relationships that are characteristically nasty, brutish, and short. The same goes for organizations like Amazon and Uber, which systematically pit their workers against each other. Uber, in the words of one anonymous employee, is a Hobbesian jungle where you can never get ahead unless someone else dies. Science has advanced considerably since the 1970s. In subsequent editions of The Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins scrapped his assertions about humans' innate selfishness, and the theory has lost credence with biologists. Although struggle and competition clearly factor into the evolution of life, every first-year biology student now learns that cooperation is much more critical. This is a truth as old as the hills. Our distant ancestors knew the importance of the collective and rarely idolized individuals. Hunter-gatherers the world over, from the coldest tundras to the hottest deserts, believe that everything is connected. They saw themselves as a part of something much bigger, linked to all other animals, plants, and Mother Earth. Perhaps they understood the human condition better than we do today. Yeah, a little bit long, but right on. Okay, ready for this? Ready to get in to talking with Molly Rose? Fantastic. Let's do it. Turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with super nice Molly Rose. Molly, Molly Rose, welcome to nice work. Really glad to have you on. Good. Uh, wait, we're both West Coast now. Yeah. Good morning still. Good Todd, morning. Good morning. It's so good to talk to you. <laughs> So you're out here in LA, but you live where normally? I normally live in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, yeah, out here, it's always nice to be out here. The weather is so good. It's probably pretty cool in Brooklyn right now. Uh, this is your window of decent weather. when I left, so... That ain't bad. 90's not bad. I like 90. 90's kind of like my sweet spot. But I grew up in northern, northern California, the valley, where... Mm-hmm. 90 is the precursor to 122. Well, there's no problem with 90 <laughs> if it's a dry heat, which is what anybody in California will say. Exactly. <laughs> well, hey, welcome to LA. I'm hoping that you love it. LA is a great city. Brooklyn is awesome as well. So, you know, two two good shots. Welcome. And let's, let's jump in and talk about this great organization, Burners Without Borders, that has been on my... When I first started a podcast... And what people do when they start podcasts is they usually come up with a list of people they want to talk to or organizations or stories they want to tell. Burners Without Borders, as a burner myself, was on my first list. I just had to wait until I figured out a way to make it happen, like who I knew. You know, I don't like doing cold calls for any guests, right? It's super not fun. So finally, uh, I realized, oh, one of my very favorite humans, uh, Leslie, works out at Burning Man now. So now's the time. So thanks, Leslie. I love you. You're fantastic. You made this happen. This conversation is dedicated to you. Maybe you can't hear Um, it, but I'm clapping. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start at the top. What is Burners Without Borders and how did it come about? Yeah. So Burners Without Borders is at this point a program of the Burning Man Project. And basically what what our team does is support the the section of the global Burning Man community who are passionate about civic impact. So we get the opportunity and I get the opportunity to connect with burners 
all over the place who are doing civic impact projects that they're passionate about in their own communities and to support them in amplifying and promoting the projects that they're doing out there, connecting them to other burners and other organizations and partners to help move that work along and just being a place for people to come and find each other and gather as peers towards this vision of civic activation. So that's Burners Without Borders now. Um, Burners Without Borders started in 2005 as a response to Hurricane Katrina. And um, I can tell you that story, you know, as I was preparing for chatting with you, Todd, I remembered that I (laughs) have told this story before a few years ago at an educational conference. And I had it memorized. I don't have it memorized anymore. But uh, if if you're okay with it, I'm going to use my notes to make sure that I'm sharing all of the juicy details because I was not around at that time. Yeah, that'd be great. Go ahead. And and however we get the info across, um, Memorization of, of things is something, uh, yeah, you do it for the moment. That's yeah. what computers and papers for and archival materials. Let's hear it. I want to hear about this. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, well, I'm going to take us back to 2005. So 2005 in Black Rock City was a time when there was actually a true disconnectivity out there in the desert, right? No cell phones, no internet. And so when a whisper of a natural disaster started to kind of make its way around the city, people discovered that there had been a major hurricane in the Gulf Coast of the United States. And so as that word started to spread, some people on Playa just had no way of knowing if their families were okay or if they even had like a home to return to. And so a major natural disaster like Hurricane Katrina is when is like a time when there are many needs and values in tension with each other. So it's a complicated environment for volunteers, right? Government aid responses are overwhelmed in a disaster by the needs of the survivors. The stress is enormous for families that are trying to rebuild. And the skills that are ingrained for many participants in Burning Man, like radical self-reliance, building and making, and working as a team to accomplish things in harsh environments, these are all ideal training experiences, right? To be useful as volunteers in a post-crisis disaster. So from from Black Rock City, 35 burners left and drove straight to Louisiana, loaded up with cash and material donations that folks had dropped off from across the event. Even though Black Rock City is a place where no money exchanges hands, people somehow came up with thousands of dollars in cash to donate to the Katrina response. So there was this spontaneous collective instinct of burners feeling a civic responsibility to do something for our community and the people and, and all the people impacted by this disaster. So when they first touched down in Louisiana, they approached larger federal organizations to offer support and were basically met with, uh, meh, we don't really want your dusty stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so they continued to kind of search around. They eventually found their place in the ecosystem. And after a bunch of months rebuilding a Vietnamese temple in Biloxi, they moved on to a small community in Purlington, Mississippi. And when they started talking with folks in Purlington and were kind of like uncovering the needs, they really learned that families weren't able to apply for aid benefits if their houses had two walls that were still standing. And so the line for for demolition support in that area was like a mile long. 
it might kind of seem ironic that <laughs> you would go to rebuild a place and instead end up like knocking everything down. But that is really the nature of disaster. And so because of our community's experience with heavy equipment from Playa, they were able to partner with a company called Daewoo, which is a service provider that was donating heavy machinery. And so burners started to do that mission critical demolition work so that families could access those federal resources. And basically burners ended up staying in the area for nine months and they gifted over a million dollars worth of, yeah, over a million dollars worth of reconstruction and debris removal to the residents of Mississippi. But honestly, that's not even the most incredible part of the story because as the demolition went on, people were faced with an incredible amount of stuff. Anybody who's experienced a natural disaster knows that there's just mountains of debris, like tables, couches, bed frames, cabinets, everything. And so burners started to spend those evenings with community members after demolition work building sculptures from burnable debris. And then on Saturday nights, they started to burn those sculptures in the neighborhoods where they were working. And so this is where the story gets really special because local community members, aid workers, and government employees would all come around to these fires, these big bonfires. And a space for conversations was created where there wasn't mm, one before, uh, right? So that's a, yeah, it's amazing. Whether people were needing services or providing services, there's an equality in the power dynamic of connecting around a fire. And so to kind of wrap it up, in, in a traditional frame of thinking about disaster response, you wouldn't put, you know, build trash sculpture and set it on fire into a blueprint for a disaster response. But it's that exact tension the kind of weightiness and heaviness of the situation with this rebellious creativity in the face of disaster that gives people an opportunity to create a moment of levity or lightness, which is one of my favorite words. (laughs) And so, you know, from there, from that place of combining civic impact and radical expression and creativity is where Burners Without Borders was born. And it it operated as a standalone nonprofit organization for many years until it became a part of the Burning Man Project just like six or seven years ago. That's a great story of, you know, birth and rebirth, burning, rebuilding. I think that it obviously dovetails so well into the larger Burning Man project and the ethos of Burning Man and Black Rock City, like you said, the skills. What I think we need to address is something that's kind of amazing to me. And it shows me just how the bubble I live in, living out here on the West Coast, uh, which is that some listeners are going to have no idea what you were talking about (laughs) when you referenced Black Rock City. Like, wait, I can just I can just hear the thought. Wait, there's a city somewhere in the U.S. A that I've never heard of. B that what doesn't have phones or the internet and, and radio. How how did they not know? How could only 35 <laughs> people in the city not know? So I think for those that don't know what Black Rock City is or what Burning Man is, and I know we could spend like 10 hours talking about Burning. It's it's ridiculous. First of all, I want to say, folks, Molly and I are going to give you a quick overview. But if you don't know what Burning Man is, use the Google. And whatever you learn, it's not going to quite be 
what Burning Man is. It's it's an experiential thing that has no comparison on the planet, but you can get an idea of it. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Molly. Um, what's Black Rock City? <laughs> there are so many ways to answer that question, Todd. And I, know, I know, I know. <laughs> so- <laughs> but how about this? In the context of what you were just saying earlier, let's you know, let's not get too deep because everybody else that knows what Burning Man is 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 going to be like, ah, yeah, they're like blah blah blah. Could you move on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Word. Yeah. Um, you know what? There are a few different ways that I like to define Black Rock City. Um, One is that it's a city in the desert. One way is also that it is an art event. Uh, It is not a festival, but a lot of people think that it is. And uh, my favorite way to describe it is as one giant construction project. Yeah, and it's it's in the desert. What's the closest big city? I guess the closest... Big city is Reno. Yep, yeah. it's about two, yeah. two and a half hours out from Reno. The closest town is a tiny town called Gerlach. And yeah. it's about, um, it's a city in the desert, in Black Rock Desert, that gets built for months and which is populated and activated for eight days where people from around the world bring their art, people who don't consider themselves artists off of out of outside of Black Rock City, people who are doing art all the time, people bring their gifts and place them around the city and build their little towns and neighborhoods within this city of 80,000 people. I think that it is the third largest city in Nevada when it exists. Um, that could be wrong. Somebody should should check that out for sure. But it's the third largest city. We're just going to own that. We're just going to yeah. own that. <laughs> and it's just a place for people to come and live. People bike, people kit out cars into works of art and just gift whatever and explore whatever and receive whatever um, and connect with other people that are living in that city for eight days is really what it is when you come down to it. It's quite an experience, folks. Um I've been out there a few times. Shout out to the camps that I'm affiliated with. Got to do it. Um, Boring. (laughs) Love you immensely. Thank you for finally introducing me to the burn. And Sparkle Pony. You know, got to give you guys love as well. Uh, So it's something that you just can't. There's a lot of haters on it that haven't been. So, and I get it. And, And whatever your objections may be to the idea of Burning Man or the contradictions or the hypocrisies, if they're valid for you, that's fine. That's great. To my mind, it is an experience worth doing. It's one of those things that is truly unique. And, um, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. The big point here though, is that Burning Man goes from an empty desert Literally empty, no trash. They, I mean, it's a whole different story how everything has to be cleaned up. To a city of 80,000 with everything you would get in a city. You know, you have hospital, you have transportation networks, you have everything except, well, largely except connectivity with the outside world. All right. There is some phone and Wi-Fi out there, but it's incredibly limited. So it is a city cut off. It's in a bubble. And that's so that people, well, with the reason that, that, that well, it is cut off, what's the best way to describe that? You know, well, back in the day, it was because there was no other option, right? There just yeah, literally true. is no yeah. cell service and no internet yeah. service out there. And I think now it is, it's because uh, part of Burning Man is that our community 
has these 10 principles, which were observed by the founder um, after, I don't know, 10 years of Burning Man existing and, and written down. And one of them is immediacy. And so I think that there's a lot about the culture and the values of the Burning Man community that promotes kind of being here now, um, like immediacy, communal effort, radical self-reliance. Those are a couple of the 10 principles. And so that desire to just be present where we are is a big part of why, especially we encourage people, even if you do have internet or do have cell service now, these days we still encourage people to put their phones away and just uh, be be with yourself where you are, you know? Eight days without your phone, or some of us are there for longer, a couple of weeks. People are there uh, for months or, at a time. Or more, <laughs> if they're part of the Burning Man project, yeah. My favorite thing about Burning Man might be that I am cut off from the outside world. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Anyway, the point of, of covering that ground, you guys, is that out of that environment of, of truly radical self-reliance and building structures, big structures uh, for, for large camps to live in, yeah, this is a great place for disaster relief, but also community building expertise to be learned without even knowing that you're learning it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to a few burns, you're like, oh my gosh, I can kind of handle a lot of things now and I could do a lot of stuff um, you know, because you have to. Todd, when, so I've spent, I've had the honor really uh, to help produce the Burners Without Borders camp in Black Rock mm-hmm. City the past couple of years before the pandemic. And one of the things that I just love the most about it is that when we're describing our camp, what we kind of say sometimes is that it's a place for leaders to succeed. And I really feel like that about Burning Man and Black Rock City in general, like whether you're an emerging leader or an established leader, it's a place that gives you permission to try and to grow and to stretch yourself on your edges. And I think that's, you know, I have plenty of thoughts about Black Rock City and the energy and and how we use our energy in the world. And I know that for me, Black Rock City is one of the was the first place in the United in the world that I felt free um, from like a lot of things. And it's really powerful to have those experiences and everybody deserves them. Yeah, it's definitely uncomfortable. And for a lot of folks, it looks like, oh, that was really (laughs) uncomfortable. I wouldn't want to be there. If that's you, ask yourself, like, is, you know, maybe that's a, maybe that's a border you want to cross. Maybe that's telling you like, you, you might want to give it a shot. Okay. So, I think we got the backstory a little bit. We fawned over Burning Man a little without being too burnery. I think that was, you know, that was, we did a good job with that. Good job. Hats off. Nailed it. Now we have the backstory. How about some success stories? Um, Biloxi, you talked about, you know, the, the temple there. More recently, what are some things that you guys have been involved in? And how does that work? How do people, I mean, you're not necessarily as an organization in control of, who starts what sort of chapter, right? Not at all. And we don't, we don't want to be. So yeah, I would love to tell you a little bit about how Burners Without Borders works now with the Burners Without Borders community and with the extended community. We really hope to and aspire to be a, an organizing space that's very low barrier to entry. So the idea is that anybody who has a civic project who wants to be connected to Burners Without Borders can connect with us and receive support and find community in some way. And so there's a few different ways that we do that. 
I would say this is just spitballing percentages, but yeah, yeah. maybe about <laughs> maybe about 25% of our work is supporting the Burners Without Borders chapter network, which is a, a network of about 40 um, different groups and chapters that are in different levels of formation and formality. So some of them are registered nonprofits. Some of them are just a couple of friends who want to gather under the Burners Without Borders identity to talk about land generativity, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so we have this network framework so that if people are interested in connecting in a long-term way and building and activating with a group in a long-term way, either in their region or around a specific subject area, it's really easy for them to plug into that network of peer leaders. We also work with basically any burner who has a civic impact project who is seeking support. So uh, another way that we work is just with projects in general. So it's a little confusing, but chapters create projects, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to be within the chapter network to have a BWB project. You can also just submit a project outright. And so really I've found, I've been working with the network for three years. I'm the program manager for Burners Without Borders in Burning Man Project. And we're so available to burners. We really want to be a low barrier to entry way that people can um, ask questions or start or do their first civic impact project for the first time, whether it's a cleanup, you know, demooping of your block. And for those that don't know, Burning Man MOOP stands for matter out of place. And it's really an important tenant of our culture. Another one of our values is leave no trace. So whether somebody's organizing a cleanup in their neighborhood or whether people are actually, I can just lead into some recent examples because right right before I got on the phone with you, I, I was actually on one of our BWB chapter leads calls. So I've got some fresh examples that are going right now. And for example, BWB Portland um, in Oregon is in the middle of completing an initiative that they've been working on for about a year or maybe less called the C-3PO project, which is an infrastructure build supporting three tiny house villages in Portland, which each are home to about 40 previously unsheltered residents. So what the Portland chapter is doing and has done is that they've built three 40-foot geodesic domes and Mm -hmm. placed them as living rooms in these three tiny home communities to create Uh more space for these folks. And they did it basically for free. Um, They're they're not done yet, but they're planning on writing a toolkit for how they did this dome build out because they used a couple of tricks to make it super low cost. And everything that they're doing is in service to the leadership of the folks that are actually impacted by this issue, which in this case is being unsheltered. And so they came to this connection and they're like, what do you need? And they're like, we need more space to gather as a community. And then over months now they have these three domes that are COVID compliant that are made with, you know, free banner material from the hot, from billboards on the highway that are now autonomous spaces for these communities to be in community together. So that's one example. Another example that I just heard today is from our BWB Sacramento chapter. And and also it was a chapter leads call, right? So these are all going to be chapter examples, but I'll give you a couple of non-chapter examples after. Um, So Sacramento actually just did something very exciting, which is that they partnered with the local Sacramento regional events and with one of the, um, 
official regional events of Burning Man Project, which was a drive through a COVID safe art drive through in California. They partnered with them. And then they also partnered with their local chapter of California Dreamers, which is DACA recipients to support a pupusa sale, um, which is outside of the official Burning Man event to um, raise money for a school in El Salvador, which is a school that actually one of the one of the folks from California Dreamers that they're partnering with went to that school and was like, hey, when I went to this school, it didn't have a roof. And I know that we need more stuff down there. And so through this relationship building with with their partner, California Dreamers, they're getting to know this community, understanding the needs and able to grow their impact really fast. They went from one school that has 20 kids in it. And then they were asked to do additional fundraising for a second school, which has 90 kids in it. And, you know, there's a lot of questions around, I'm just going to be honest, like white saviorism, right? Like, Mm -hmm. how do people do civic impact projects for others who are not in their own regional community? And I think this is a really good example of how you do that, which is that this is like showing how you can put the energy of the Burning Man community towards the leadership of someone who's most affected by a situation. In this case, this person who actually went to this school and is like, hey, we need this. And then they're able to accomplish so much by kind of deferring to that leadership. That's great. It sounds like it's similar with Portland C-3PO. You said they were also doing this for an organization, probably, you know, unsheltered advocacy organization, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, more people. Yep. And, you know, it actually speaks to one of our, we have some values within BWB that we talk about freely with our leads as ways, as the framework that we support events. And one of those is with, not for. And so Mm -hmm. another way of talking about that is like solidarity, not charity. There's a lot of different ways to split the hair, but the idea of, um, we don't have the we don't have the solutions, and we recognize that unless we're being led by someone who's the who's most impacted by a crisis, we are not going to know the answer to a question. So coming in with a lot of clarity about what skills we have and what kind of support we have to offer from the spirit of gifting, which is another value of the ten principles of Burning Man. Mm-hmm. But not having an expectation of the outcome of what that support is going to look like, um, that's really how we do our best work. Because Portland did not know that they were going to be making geodesic domes. They just knew that Portland has a crisis of unsheltered residents and that they felt compelled to support those people. And then through the relationship building, they figured out the way that they could really do that. That's fantastic. So I'm hearing that... BWB has people that are doing disaster relief. If a disaster pops up, you're probably going to have burners out there uh, answer the call and most likely through BWB. But just as importantly, more importantly, you have people around the world that are helping build resilience within communities. And these are the things that help prevent, outright help prevent disasters, humanitarian disasters, um, uh, future scaled levels of um being without shelter, but also in the face of disaster, real physical, um, what do you call it, natural disasters, you know, resilient communities have better communication, network, they're more prepared to face adversity. So you're building 
you know, the word resilience gets bandied about a lot, but it's an important one. You know, uh, this is great. So it's, it's not just reactive, but it's, you guys are wildly proactive. You know, Todd, you're kind of hitting something right on the head, which is um, a way that the BWB community has evolved since Katrina, because you're absolutely right. In the past years, we've really understood that disaster response is community building and that community building is disaster response in the long term. Yeah. So for the past couple of years, we've been working with this document that I love, which was drafted by a BWB member, Nick Farr, who um, is great. He's an accountant. And he wrote this white paper called The Long Disaster. And you can find it at longdisaster.org, I think. Um, and it it basically talks about the fact that we need to change the way that we think about disaster response in a world where there are ever more compounding economic, social, and environmental disasters every day. Like it's not in, in the past, there might've been a world where like you have wildfire season on the West coast from, you know, September to November, and then you have hurricane season at that time as well. And then there's, you know, some others I'm speaking to the West coast because uh, I talk about it a lot, but all around the world, there's kind of this rhythm and that rhythm is changing. And so where we might've had a wildfire season where we would expect to be responding to that for three months in the West coast of the United States, that wildfire season is now nine months, you know, it, it actually doesn't end. And same with hurricane season and same with tornado. And as we have more volatile climate and also as we have volatile social systems across the world, um, you know, the vast majority of refugees are climate refugees. And also, (laughs) um, we know that climate crisis also impacts social issues, like it makes them worse. And so with all of that, the question that we've been holding as a community is, how do we respond in a sustainable way when the response is every day and everywhere? And Mm -hmm. it's not a question of if an issue, if a disaster is going to strike, it's when is it going to happen in your town? Because it is. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I would, I'm going to give another shout out here uh, to, well, we've had the executive director on the show before, but it's an organization I worked with for five and a half years. And if you're interested out there, and if you're interested, Molly, if your organization is interested uh, in an organization and people doing incredible work to answer the question of how that you just asked, how do we prepare um, Post Carbon Institute? postcarbon.org and they have a uh, website that they put out that actually I helped originally I was uh, involved with the build out of that as was another uh, guest Marnie Alaba uh, whose book mostly I miss my nipples is a great book if you are going through uh, breast cancer or someone you love is I know I'm ping-ponging from guest to guest here but it'll all make sense that website is resilience.org resilience.org has a lot of information on what is community resilience, what is, what was Molly talking about when she was talking about these interwoven crises that are humanitarian, they're economic, they're environmental, uh, they're resource scarcity driven uh, above all in a lot of ways. Um, There's a lot to learn and it doesn't have to be depressing. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. There's a feeling of strength and security when you start getting educated and you start to understand, yeah, maybe you can't do anything against a tidal wave or an earthquake, right? But when you know how to 
respond instead of react and you mm-hmm. can become a, a leader in your own neighborhood well in your family first uh, then your neighborhood then your larger community wow it's it's pretty it's pretty empowering it's pretty empowering stuff to to learn about these organizations and then once you kind of get a little bit of education around it boom you can plug into or even before something like burners without borders Long, long, long segue to my question, which is when people are there and they're feeling excited about it, how do they get involved? What's the best way? That's a great question. And um, there's a couple of different ways. People can always head to our website, burnerswithoutborders.org, to just get a little bit of an overview. If you're interested in plugging into a chapter um, or seeing if there's a chapter that's near you, then I'm just going to find that link because it's an easy one to say. Yep. And it's just burnerswithoutborders.org slash chapters. And that takes you to a map so you can see the closest groups to you. And then if you're interested in just doing a project or if you have any kind of inquiry, um, you can always email bwb at burningman.org to reach our team if you have a project inquiry. And then we can, we're just on the cusp of giving our website a facelift Um, Mm -hmm. with a new look and feel, and it'll have a much clearer process to submit a project kind of cold. But normally we have a connection with burners and we have a little bit of conversation before we share more about how to move your project idea forward in a potential collaboration. And you know, Todd, if we have time, I just thought of another um, recent example of a non-chapter project that was about building connectivity um, and resilience during COVID. And mm-hmm. it's an amazing project called Pedacito de la Tierra or a little piece of home. And you can find it at pedacitodelatierra.org. Basically, this was a multi-pronged initiative that was a partnership between Burners Without Borders and an organization called Alight, which is formerly known as the American Refugee Association, I think. And we did an activation to think about how to support a uh, house community space in Nogales, Mexico, which was hosting 200 residents who were in their migration journey, um, who were stuck there for the whole time during COVID. And they were actually the only shelter residents, Casa, that didn't get COVID at all. Um, They were you know, just really insular, 200 people and um, run by this amazing nun. (laughs) She's part of this collective of badass nuns who work along the border to support people in their migration journeys. And so with Burners Without Borders, we um, came together to do several different things. So one thing that we did in collaboration for their infrastructure build out was we built a cob oven, an Orno, um, an outdoor oven at this site in partnership with the residents who were super familiar with Ornos from back home in their cultures. So it was really awesome to see folks, you know, it was like the spark of an idea partnering with artist Mm -hmm. Ronald Rael. And then people just took it up. They made all the bricks. They made the whole thing in like three days. There was also a space transformation done by a light to make the space feel like home. We called the event Pedacito de la Tierra because it's about the fact that no matter who you are, you deserve to feel at home where you are. And so another aspect of this project was that a video was made called Pedacito de la Tierra. And I can send you a link that you can include in the podcast link if anybody wants to watch it. But it's actually being shown this week at the Venice Biennale, 
which is like, I guess wow. a really yeah. important, <laughs> I'm obviously not a video person, but I guess that's a really important um, documentary film festival. And mm-hmm. people are really excited about it. And it just shows kind of the full human character of all of these people who are kind of stuck in this process that at the end of the day is around how humans are affected by different environmental and social disasters. Um, And then the last thing that we did, which was really fun, was that we hosted a virtual dinner, um, a decentralized dinner table experience for people to um, connect and talk and have conversations around the idea of home and belonging, which is also something that's really integral to Burning Man culture in general, is this idea of being welcomed home. And so through that event, we had like 400 people on the call, and we were able to highlight uh, three chefs who live at the Casa in Nogales. We also highlighted chefs in other parts of Mexico and Colombia. We had music, we screened the video, and we just really experimented with how do we actually have fun building community in a virtual platform? How do we have people in Canada who feel like they're really at the Casa in Nogales and understanding how important it is for all of us to be together as a global community that we recognize that we are. So I just wanted to share that one as an example of a totally different type of project. Oh, no, I love it. Please, <laughs> please do send the link yeah. so that we can post that up. Uh, definitely will. And I just love this idea of, you know, sitting around a campfire and talking about community, whether that campfire is the man mm-hmm. burning down or, you know, a couple of uh, chairs and a table uh, after a hurricane, that's not quite as good, but you know, it's still a thing or, you know, uh, around an oven and a, a table and, you know, in Nogales. And I think that, I mean, it's certainly what super nice club likes to do during COVID. None of that, but, um, get people together mm-hmm. in the real world, the members together and address, Hey, what would be nice in your community? What should we be working on here? Cause obviously there's different things in different communities and typically, it's pretty apolitical. People can all point to something and go, yeah, that, here's a higher quality of life would be addressing that thing. Now, how we address it, that's where you get politics involved. But, you know, that doesn't usually happen until you get politicians involved. Well, you know. Yeah, totally. Like <laughs> so we don't, and we don't need to. We don't need to. We don't need to get politicians involved to do amazing work. We really don't. You know, we need to gather around more campfires and uh, hang out with each other. And also folks feel like you can do stuff. You know, you might think, oh, I just, you know, I'm just do this. I, everybody has their own skills and their own passions. And you, you know, whatever they may be, you have your unique sort of skill stack. And then things that you were into as a kid, like, oh, I was really into sci-fi and, and D&D or whatever it was. You know, you might think, what use is that? It's a lot of use, right? The, there's a place for dreamers. There's a place who are great with, uh, you know, finance there's there's a place for everybody because community is anyway i'm rambling here but you guys get it Podcast don't people, make any me, but excuses. I'm <laughs> yeah don't make any excuses why you can't get involved completely revamping your community and because you're of the community in a way that your local politicians usually are not no matter how many times they sponsor the local softball team you're in a better position to do greater work faster cheaper and more encompassing always so you know uh, get involved with with Burners Without Borders. Get involved with organizations that are doing cool stuff in your neighborhood. Um, and if you already are and you want them to integrate and, and need the support of the Super Nice Club, absolutely reach out. I want to talk about 
you a little bit here, maybe a little bit, Molly <laughs> Rose, best name ever. Um, I stalked your LinkedIn profile a little bit. Nice. And <laughs> I saw you add me. You, yeah, your about section reads, I empower people to be leaders. Creative engagement builds resilient communities. I co-create projects at the nexus of creativity, civic engagement, and mutual aid. And this is that's wonderful. It's absolutely super nice, Molly. I'm curious. I'm curious. You know, did you did you feel drawn to doing this sort of work before you started doing the work, or did your years at nonprofits kind of shape your passions? I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you remember thinking, ah, oh, this is what I want to do. And was it ever anything else? Yeah, that's a really good question, Todd. I think that, bef- I mean, there was always something else, you know, as a child. I think my first things were like ballerina, obviously, and then like marine biologist, Duh. obviously. Um, but once I started, I, I had the privilege of going to a very interesting college, which was a three and a half year study abroad program. So I spent each year in undergrad, uh, traveling between one and up to four countries in a way that was mostly independent study and project based. So let that sink in for a minute. If anybody's like, that's for me, then like you're weird and let me know. Cause I can tell you about it. Um, but when I, when I first started doing that, I, I guess I kind of thought that I was going to be moving towards environmental advocacy kind of stuff. And remember like marine biologist. And then when I lived in India, I had a transformative experience. And uh, I guess really briefly, um, you know, my roommates were walking to get ice cream in our neighborhood. I lived in Bangalore in a neighborhood called Sheshadripuram. And um, we saw a kid getting kind of like beat up by some adults in a park. And so my roommates went to this temple to tell people and ask for aid. And the guy from the temple came out and was basically like, oh, no, it's okay. He's a thief. And the cops are taking him to jail. And just for some reference, like this kid was probably between eight and 10. And so not to say that that doesn't happen in the United States, but I'm from right. the Napa Valley, which is the indigenous WAPO territory in central California. And it's a very affluent place. And I had never experienced, I had never seen police brutality like that before. And so it was really an eye opener that changed the course of my year in India. And I <laughs> changed my independent study to be about police brutality and about violence against marginalized groups in India. And that kind of followed me through the rest of school. So basically, I realized that every issue is important and that actually I really love humans. Like I, some people don't, and I really do. I think we're cute. I think we're funny. I think we have a lot of potential. I love the idea that the gods made us because they love how creative and beautiful we are, um, which is part of an, of a, an origin story that's from Guatemala. And so I just realized that it's really important to me to support, um, you know, ending human suffering. And I know that's lofty and impossible, which for sure tortures me every day, but that's kind of like my guiding really feeling of things that I want to see happen in my lifetime. Uh, There's so much to chew on with that. These experiences that you have when you're younger, whether you're in college Mm -hmm. or not in college, whatever, you see something and it, wow, there's that that eye-opening experience, that heart-opening experience, that mind-opening experience. Right. And it leads you down a path. Now, 
not everyone sees that and says, uh, I need to pursue how to stop that in the future. A lot of us, myself included, see horrible things and go, oh, that sucks. And if we can't stop it in the moment, we just think, oh, man, bummer. You know, but we don't pursue a life dedicated to trying to see that less of that happens. You know, you said end human suffering, right? But uh, the, that's part of our nature, right? Right to suffer. So obviously, you don't mean to no, totally end human literally. suffering. There goes all. There goes the blues, right? There goes whole genres of music. Yeah, there goes art. Yeah, <laughs> but to to end unnecessary suffering because so much of it is unnecessary. I, you know, yeah. resource inequalities cause so much suffering around the world. Prejudices cause so much suffering, uh, and being on that path is an incredible career choice. It's also one that I know from experience that can be depressing Yeah, in a day-to-day job because you're like, guess what? I woke up today and they're still suffering. <laughs> I worked my ass off last week for 60 hours for, you know, in a lot of cases, pretty marginal pay and they're still suffering. I've been at it for years and they're still suffering. Mm-hmm. What Do you have any tricks uh, that allow you to, to stay feeling rewarded? That's a great question. And I think that I really had that experience. And and it's not only like I woke up this morning and they're still suffering, but like I woke up this morning <laughs> and I actually still don't have the resources in the system and framework that I work in to actually make much of a difference besides putting a Band-Aid on it. I think that's also something that people who work in humanitarian initiatives feel, you know, despite the good mm-hmm. work that they're doing. That's often what you're doing is putting a Band-Aid on an issue that's way above your pay grade. And so I, to be honest, that is kind of why we're talking through the lens of me working at Burning Man. You know, after a few years, mm-hmm. um, I just realized that I was so moved by the trauma that I was experiencing secondhand through my study and through my work that it made it, I I knew that I wouldn't be able to have an impact in a long-term way if I didn't find a way to work through a lens of creativity and, and levity and joy. And that's just me. That's just the way that I am as a human that I need that. Um, and so after college, you know, I really wanted to be a coordinator for humanitarian aid. And then through that, process, I also was like, except I need it to be different than the nonprofit industrial complex. Like I can't, I can't do that. And so I ended up working for about five years at an amazing organization called Clowns Without Borders. That is a, I worked for Clowns Without Borders USA, which uh, organizes or before the pandemic organized about 10 to 14, two to three week um, international circus performance and workshop tours in refugee camps, natural disaster sites, and communities experiencing conflict around the world. It's one of 15 chapters in different places in in different countries. And so I think that the takeaway that I have to offer, and this is just from me as my person, and you have to think about who you are as a person and what feeds you, is, Mm -hmm. is that you have to be honest about what feeds you and you have to know that you're not gonna make everything better ever and also that if it's not fun it's not sustainable so i even saw that and experienced that with my work with the clowns with um humanitarian aid workers all around the world who got so much from our tours because they too need to see the people that they're serving laughing and experiencing recreation. And 
the compounding loss of access when people lose those foundational accesses to housing, to food, to clean water, to a, a place to have an identity, right? Those make everything else, you, it makes you lose everything else too. And that's not fair, in my opinion. Like just because you don't have access to basic services doesn't mean that you're not a human doesn't mean that you don't deserve moments of recreation and relaxation and access to levity. And so through my like deep knowing of that, it's helped me find a way to work in this that feeds me. So folks, if you're paying attention here, she said clowns without borders. <laughs> um, if you're not a burner or a doctor or a clown, don't get down. You can still get involved, all right? There's so many organizations. There's probably, maybe you like snakes. There's probably herpetologists without there is. Orders, There's literally there. everything. Right? Just, just get in there. Find the one whatever. that works for you. You know, there's probably even subsets. There's probably sad clowns without borders, right? You know, so just, Those are my just find your space. My like that. <laughs> yeah, find your space, you know. Um, it's out there. It is out there. And that's uh, nonprofit work. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a whole other conversation, the, the nonprofit industrial complex. And we're not going to, the super nice club, so we're not going to name names. We're not going to mention organizations like the Sierra Club because that just wouldn't be kind, you know. Um, but there is, <laughs> there's so much politics and, and hierarchies within the nonprofit world and people competing over grants and all this stuff that are wildly unnecessary. Um, they really, they're completely unnecessary and they're antithetical to doing the work. They're, they're very, um, thetical to keeping an organization's payroll going, mm. but uh, it's my opinion that nearly every nonprofit's goal should be to go out of business as quickly as possible. You know, since this right? is the super nice club, I know that we are not going to talk about capitalism and white supremacy and the way that they influence the nonprofit industrial complex because it's not super nice. Yeah. We don't want to trigger people. It's interesting what I, it's been years now. It's been five years since, since I worked on profit. I'm wondering, and I couldn't find it then. Maybe it exists now, or maybe I just missed it because I'm so terrible with details. Is there a gathering, like an annual gathering for humanitarian workers, like a festival or a big, I always thought there should be a big get together where everybody could sort of just share, you know, their war stories and collaborate outside of, you know, emails and, and uh, having to be worried about, oh, you know what, they're, they're allied with so-and-so and they're counting on this grant and they might feel like we're nudging in on, on their subscribers, et cetera, et cetera. Do you know of anything like that? You know, off the top of my head, I don't. It's something that we've talked, like it's something we've dreamed about doing with PWP. Yeah, me too. Yeah, totally. And I think that really what your point, and so if anybody out there knows about this event, then definitely let me know too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but I feel like what you're pointing to is one of the most important things to kind of keep in mind if you are someone who's trying to wrap your head around how to have impact and feeling like you're under, under-resourced or under-skilled to do that, especially when we're talking about more local, even if you're talking about a big nonprofit, they always have local chapters and local offices. And it's always people, right? Underneath every organization, you're talking about people. And so one of the ways that I have absolutely, like the, the main way to have an impact 
is to build relationships with those people, meaningful relationships, and towards a long-term shared vision. It's so much easier to work and collaborate and partner and you and move those organizational resources that people are representing and holding the doors to if you remember that it's more than anything about relationship building and trust once mm-hmm. you have developed trust then the resources move a lot smoother amen to that all right so here's a question the goal of the super nice club is to make the world 10 percent nicer <laughs> by any means necessary all right we're, I mean, it's not as lofty as ending human suffering. Oh, my but, God. You know, 10% less. So if, if the goal is to make the world 10% nicer, what does your nicer world look like, Molly? Where, where would you start? <sighs> my nicer world. You know, I was just talking, I guess. Okay, so I'm going to give a little I'm going to give a background which is that I'm currently in Great. in the middle of a program called the Anne Braden Anti-Racist Organizer Training. Shout out to the Catalyst Project, which is a movement school in the Bay Area, and it's a 4-month long um, class that is for white people who are trying to develop more as anti-racist organizers and leaders to support their own communities. And in that and that's obviously better. I'm not obviously, I say that all the time now, <laughs> but that's been a really transformative class for a lot of different reasons. It's opened my eyes to a lot of different frameworks and theories that I wasn't thinking about before. And so in the question of like, how do I see making the world 10% nicer? And how do I see myself in that world making, making it 10% nicer? I think that for me, I've been really reframing what it means to be a leader and to succeed as a leader. And where I'm sitting in that now is that to me, success as a leader means growing leadership in as many people as possible and giving permission to as many people as possible to be leaders, to be leaders, to create what uh, organizers might recognize as a leaderful movement moving away from having Mm. one charismatic person who's really championing something and moving towards a place where everybody in the organization or in the movement or in the project sees and feels themselves as leaders and as like autonomous humans that are working. Right. And so to me, that is kind of the way that I want to grow and support folks and contribute 10% more nicer to the planet right now. (laughs) Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're in. I'm glad you're in. You, you know you're a member of the club now, oh, right? Oh, excellent. When, when, you're on the, when you're on the show, you're a member of the club. <laughs> so, actually, we're all born into the club. I know if you're a listener, you already know this. You may already uh, be a member. Every human, every human is born into the club. Sometimes you just need to be reminded. We have a super nice club insider question for you. Insiders are uh, folks who uh, subscribe to our, our about once a week text service that just sends out ridiculous bits of wisdom. Kareen in Tacoma, Washington asks, and of course you're going to be asked this, um, what's the future of Burning Man look like? Has the organization changed a lot internally because of the the COVID shutdowns? And by that, I think she's referring to folks, the fact that Burning Man hasn't been able to have its event for two years in a row now. Great. Totally 
an expected question that makes sense. And I think that first I'll say that I, in my role in Burners Without Borders, I produce our camp on Playa. But just to be really clear, the majority of my work is always off Playa the rest of the year. So I guess for me, the fact that we haven't had the Nevada event last year, and again, we're not going to produce it this year, has felt like kind of kind of like, you know, for, from the BWB side, we've been preparing for this our whole lives. You know, like we've always been right. supporting burners and taking it back into their towns and regions. And then we were like, great, you know, like we can still do this. We can do Burning Man 365 days, wherever the fuck, pardon my language, and do and have that culture and have that community and express that relationship building towards everybody that we see every day, not just for eight days on Playa. So to me, I'll just say for the record, Burning Man Project Mm -hmm. is not going anywhere. (laughs) We're going to make it. uh, We're going to produce an incredible event in 2022. And I feel personally excited because change is necessary, you know, to not change is boring. Um, And so I, I see it and I think a lot of people have seen it also with the caveat that it's been very difficult and very stressful and a lot of emotions to make these choices right. And I really am grateful for the people that have done that. But putting that part of it of like making the call, because I believe it's been the right call both years, putting that part of Mm -hmm. it aside. I agree. Right? Yeah. So putting that part of it aside, I think that it's, it's like, we have to change, you know, Black Rock City, it changes every year. It's changed from how it started in San Francisco. It ha- it's never the same. And so I kind of love that openness of being like, what can be transformed? And I think one thing that I maybe would share with you that I've learned in, my, um, in the Anne Braden program, I've been studying different forms of BIPOC feminisms, which is Black and Indigenous and other people of color led feminisms, which are less about (laughs) equality between men and women and more about equality for all people and that all people need access to services and that by focusing on the needs of those who are most oppressed, everybody gets free together. And so one of those tenets of Black feminism that I've been learning is transformative process leads to transformative outcomes. And that means that we have to allow ourselves to be transformed by process. And I think that's the opportunity that we've, we've been having over the past few years is like, Mm -hmm, how can mm -hmm. we be transformed by this? Cause it's out of our control and, and how can we have a transformative outcome because of our openness to that? I like that transformative. What is that again? You said transformative Uh, transformative process process. leads to transformative outcomes. And I learned that Uh, in the Anne Braden anti-racist organizer training. Great. Uh, and then you reminded us also of the saying, you know, basically about the least among mm-hmm. us. You can judge a, a, a culture by how the least are treated. Mm-hmm. How the least among us are treated in a lot of cultures, it's a pretty low bar. There's a lot of really rapid, powerful, meaningful work that can get done. The gap between the, the most among us and the least among us is wild. It's wildly huge. So we can do that work to improve the lot among the least among us. And I know, I know middle-class America, you're always like, oh, what about us? I, I get it, right? The middle-class, if you think that you are middle-class, ask yourself 
how you would fare if you had an unexpected $80,000 disaster happen to you. Because if you wouldn't be okay, you're not middle class. I think that's also, we could talk about that for five years, right? But we're all so much closer to resource scarcity than we are led to believe. And mm-hmm. it's real. Yeah, there's definitely... <laughs> Anyway, we're, we're getting off topic. I do remember now, though, if you want to become a Super Nice Club Insider, that number, that text number is 310-421-0393. 310-421-0393. We don't sell you stuff there. Just send you funny pictures and images and contests. We give away a lot of stuff, shirts and hats and random stuff that I make. Like I think last month I gave away a, a vintage Stussy members only, not Stussy, but members only jacket Ooh, with a super nice club patch on it. Super classy. Yeah. Uh, Darwin, Darwin M and Santa Rosa won that one. Give away a lot of stuff. It's fun to give stuff away. It really is. So if you want free stuff, 310-421-0393. This is the part of the podcast where you get to issue, I think you're going to issue a good one, probably a tough one. I don't know. Probably an introspective yeah. one. A challenge. This is a super nice challenge. You get to uh, anybody listening, members of the Super Nice Club, something they can do to make their world and their world a little nicer place. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's probably, I think you're right. I'm probably going to go with an introspective one because I'm not going to tell you to go pick up trash. I don't know your access means. I don't know you. I don't know your life. But I think what I'm going to ask you and challenge is to think about what opportunities you have to increase access to basic <laughs> to basic stuff for somebody in your neighborhood maybe it's your family maybe it's the school that you go to think about a challenge that you know about that you haven't done anything no 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 shame no fault but that you haven't done anything about and and mm-hmm. ask yourself what's at stake if you do What's at stake for you? What's at stake for your community? What are you going to get by putting energy into building with the people that are around you? And uh, think about that. That's my challenge to you. Oh, that's a big challenge. It's a great one because it allows people to, one, you know, think about it, identify. There's, there's a lot of right answers. There's a lot of mm-hmm. things that people can have access to. So you figured out, okay, it's whatever it is. Now, is there anybody already working on that mm-hmm. around me? You get to go online. Then you get to meet these people that are working on it already, which is really cool mm-hmm. because they're probably going to be similar and different than you because uh, this is community made up of a lot of members from different backgrounds. And then maybe there isn't. And how cool is that? Now you get to talk to your friends and neighbors and say, hey, y'all want to get in on this? Let's do this thing. Now you've got the bonfire situation happening. Mm-hmm. And you're the one who started it. You don't even have to have the skills. You're just one of them like, I, you can just be honest. Like, you know what? I have no idea how to do this at all. Can you help? People be like, yes, they will. You'll get a lot of yeses. All right. I love that challenge. Love to know if you take up the challenge and what the results are. If you take up the challenge, hit us up. Uh, I'll send you something in thanks from the Super Nice Club. And then lastly, you get to ask a question. You get to be the host for a second. You get to ask me a question. Any question. Um, Fire it away. Shoot. Okay. Well, Todd, what is at stake for you? What is at stake for you by bringing people to amplify super nice stuff? What's at stake for me? Yeah, what's your stake in uh, the game? I, 
I guess part of it is pride. You know, if the, if the super nice club project crashes and burns, it's like, oh man, that didn't work. But I don't really look at it like that because like a lot of folks, it's like, what are, what have I been learning along the way? Who have I met along the way? There's no downside to doing the super nice club for me. Um, financially, there's been a quote unquote downside, but what would I have done with this money? You know, whatever, right? We do the best we can. Because uh, it, it's... Uh, it's a trade. You put your efforts into one thing or two things um, and you're not putting them into other things. So I guess the only question I have around stakes for me is, uh, you know, uh, should I be doing this or should I be back in the the corporate world where I get paid well for my skills and abilities, oh, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> right? And that's the question that I had to ask myself when I was in the nonprofit world as well, because literally, you know, it's a 5x multiplier <laughs> for income when you take the skills and put them into the the for-profit world, which is also something that's so messed up, up about the nonprofit world, mm -hmm. is people should not be looking at nonprofit workers and thinking that they should not be getting wages equivalent to the executives in, let's say, Silicon Valley. Who's doing more work to help the world? I'm going to tell you, it's the nonprofit folks. Let's be real. People in the nonprofit world need to be making better wages so they can stay in the nonprofit world, support their families and really not have to side hustle all the time. Because mm. a lot of them have to always side hustle. Absolutely. I definitely side hustle the, the whole time that I work at Clowns. Yeah. Anyway, I don't I don't mean to be uh, not super nice. Silicon Valley is awesome. It, it does a lot of great stuff. There are a lot of people there. Do. No, Todd, I just want to yeah. I want to validate yeah. you because I think that yeah. in all of this, right, and to everybody listening, like nobody wakes up in the morning being like, I'm going to do something shitty today. Like all of these humans right, right. that are working on these are doing it because they want to do good. And whether it's a nonprofit or whether it's in the Silicon Valley, whether it's anywhere, people are waking up wanting to have an impact and do good in the world. And it's what we're talking about is the systemic processes that create access and deny access. So I want to be really clear about that and validate what you're saying and also say like everybody who's working on tech stuff, like you're awesome. And it's not about you as a human being a good person because I know that you are because this is the super nice club. This is true. Thank you. Thank you for, for that save because sometimes I just, I see so much money. I used to live up in that area. I just see so much money, um, in one little area and gosh, I just have to wonder, you know, could there be more, you don't have to call it philanthropy, but could there be more awareness around these crises that we face? Uh, and there, there should be, you know, and if, if you're listening, I know I have a lot of tech billionaires that listen to this podcast, maybe consider slicing off just a little bit of money, like a hundred million dollars and throwing it at, you know, your 10 favorite nonprofits to, to, boost, their, uh, to boost their weight. To add, <laughs> that would be super just nice. to add to that and to put a little more of what's at stake, I want to let you all know that in the United States, the uh, group of people who give the largest percent of their income are poor and lower working class people. Poor and, and lower working class people on average give like 20% of their income because they have stake in the game. And so for those billionaires who love Todd, like give, to, you know, match the poor and working class folks. See how that is. <laughs> wow, my 10% plea seems really lame now. So I guess we, we got to go to 20%. We could talk nicer. forever about yeah. the economic crime. We're, we're at 20% nicer. <laughs> yeah, it is. No, hey, so 
the work that you're doing, again, people, if you're interested in doing some cool work, sometimes nonprofit people get a little jaded. You, you heard a little bit of that coming out in me. I'm not going to apologize for it. That's just where it's coming from. Really, I, what Molly said is true. The people working in all of the positions all across the, the board are born nice and we all want to do cool stuff we just sometimes get caught up in the pressure to keep up with the joneses and 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 we have a a, a system that legally requires these corporations to put profits above people even if you have good people at the helm a lot of times their hands are tied like hey i can't you know our shareholders will sue us if we do that and the shareholders may not want to necessarily but they're legally obligated to so it's not big bad corporations all the time it's a big bad system that we as people can rewrite anytime we want we can even rewrite the constitution of the united states as wild as that sounds i'm going to put this out there maybe it would be cool if we had a new one that wasn't written with some of the members being slave owners and with no women at all, why would there be a bad idea to start a brand new constitution written by a much larger slice of our society? I think we could probably do a great job. Snaps to Todd. And since we're talking about it, I also just want to give a little plug for land back, indigenous people responsible for and in control of public lands. If anybody has questions about that initiative, which is land back in our lifetimes to support fire remediation, to support keeping communities safe. I'm also a person that you can talk to about that. Excellent. How do people get a hold you of you? You can get a hold of me at uh, specifically me. You can email molly.rose at burningman.org. And if you have any questions about Burners Without Borders, then you can just shoot that email to bwb at burningman.org so that it reaches my whole team. Hey, Molly, I really want to thank you first and foremost for the work that you and everybody at, at BWB is doing. Um, and hey, you guys at Clowns Without Borders, awesome too. Mm -hmm. Totally awesome. And Doctors Without Borders and Herpetologists Without Borders and, and Window Cleaners Without Borders, uh, Mariachis Without Borders. There's so many of you out there. Love all the work that you're doing at all the nonprofits. Also, thank you for helping me go so far off the rails in this episode. <laughs> really appreciate it. Probably going to lose uh, some members. Who, I was like, I'm are sorry we going there? We're going there. Okay, yeah, we're going there. We're, we're going to go there. I mean, at the end of the day, we're in service to a nicer world. And sometimes you get a little fired up. You know, I think it's okay. We need to be fired up. You know, mm -hmm. got to fight fire with fire. Thank you so much, Molly. We will meet each other on the playa one of these yeah, days. Thanks, that's, that's the thing that will happen. Yeah. It's been super nice. And there you have it, a super nice conversation with super nice Molly Rose from Burners Without Borders. I am a real big fan of what Burners Without Borders is doing. I like the spirit behind it. I like the organization behind it. I like the innovative approach behind it. Pretty much anything that's building community, repairing community, and really rebuilding community in a way that's better than it was before which is the heart of resilience building, resilience rebuilding, is straight up super nice club material. So I hope you're inspired by it and you check out the links and you get involved in Burners Without Borders near you, if that floats your boat. 
Um, if it's a hurricane that ends up floating your boat when you didn't want it to down the road, then maybe you will be a recipient of their help. That was a bit tortured, but I just, I just riffed these intros and outros. Have you noticed yet? Uh, <laughs> next week is Brendan Leonard. Brendan Leonard is a great, super nice, or at least he's semi-nice. He's the founder of semirad.com and the author of a bunch of books, um, most recently, I Hate Running and You Can Too, How to Get Started, Keep Going, and Make Sense of an Irrational Passion. So if you're into running or you hate running, either way, I think this podcast is for you. So that's, that means this podcast is, um, I guess, the most, uh, has the most potential audience of any podcast we've ever done here at Super Nice Club at the Nice Work Podcast. You follow my logic there? God, I hope so. All right. Love you a bunch. Until next week, stay nice. If you wanted to be nicer, then you could lend a helping hand. If you wanted to be nicer, then you could see your neighbor's band. Then you could put away your clothes If you wanted to be nicer You can teach everything you know And all we ask is that you just become 10% more nice That you just become 10% more nice And all we ask is that you just become 10% more nice And all we ask is that you just become 10% more So what? Big deal.